Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. sort of very early on pulled back and more or less went managed, on holiday more or less managed things uh, yeah. it was like managing by email it struck me hello and welcome to episode two of the ft business book challenge podcast the place to discover the best in business writing i'm helen barrett the ft's deputy work and careers editor with me is andrew hill management editor hello and john thornhill innovation editor and ft columnist hello the idea is simple. We're challenging you to read six classic business books in 12 weeks. Each book is chosen by an FT columnist. You get two weeks to read it before we haul our star colleague back into the studio to talk about what makes their choice of business book great. And we would love it if you joined in the discussion by tweeting us using the hashtag FTBizBooks or emailing us at businessbookclub at ft.com. In episode one, John set our first book, David Nassau's towering biography of Andrew Carnegie. But before we get to that book, here's the question we always start with. John, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I've just finished reading Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari, who is this astonishing Israeli historian who shut up the bestseller lists a few years ago with his book called Homo Sapiens, which rushed through 70,000 years of human history. And having run out of history to write about, he had to write about the future. And Homo Deus is, I think, an extraordinary examination of where some of the trends that are going on in the world at the moment could take us in the future. Uh, and whether man in particular, which has been the smartest algorithm, as he's put it, on the planet for the past uh, 70,000 years, is going to get superseded by an electronic algorithm. Oh. It's <laughs> reading. And, and is man going to get superseded by an algorithm? Well, he stresses very much that he's talking about possibilities rather than prophecies, but the logic of his argument, I think, is pretty inexorable, that uh, we are quite inefficient uh, biological, biochemical algorithms and it's only a matter of time it might be decades it might be centuries before electronic algorithms become more effective than we are is, yeah. it a, is it a provocation i mean is it an attempt to prevent that happening by warning people what might happen well i mean he's certainly trying to be as provocative as possible uh, and uh, i think he wants to stimulate a debate about these things uh, but i think uh, the logic is clear uh, i mean if you believe that computers will one day uh, become as intelligent as humans, then that has profound implications. If computers can understand ourselves better than we understand ourselves, that is a phenomenal moment in human history, I think. Certainly renders us podcasters a little bit yeah. redundant, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, I, don't know. I don't know if an algorithm can mimic... Uh, very interesting book discussion like this, but we'll see. Possibly not, but what are, what are the management lessons that you're getting? 
Well, I think the the big management lesson from it is uh, his final uh, chapter, which is all about dataism, as he puts it, which is he classifies it as a new religion. Um, and I think uh, he very much he spent a lot of time on the west coast of America talking to all of the big data revolutionaries. And I think that, that is one of the massive business themes that's happening at the moment. Companies that are amassing these vast data sets and what they can do with them uh, and applying machine learning to domain specific data sets to revolutionize whole sectors of the economy like health or education or transport. I think that will be one massive theme over the uh, next few years. Yeah, I agree. And also potentially the overreach of worshipping the data in a way that actually renders the human part of it um, insignificant. Sure, because I think a lot of the use of that data is dependent on implicit biases in the models that people create. Uh, So there's been a lot of uh, controversy around this with predictive policing in America that uh, there is an inbuilt bias in the models that they are creating. So I think it's a phenomenally interesting and it's going to be a very controversial area how these models get developed. And Andrew, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I, I just, inter- interestingly to John's last point, just finished reading uh, Clay Christensen's new book, Competing Against Luck, to inter- uh, for an interview I've done with him, um, which has a chapter about the risk of being enthralled to data. But the book that Which I, was published in last week's FT. Uh, indeed. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the book that I've been... Um, Uh, reading with a non-business hat on is um, by an author who I have to say I didn't know about until relatively recently, Lawrence Osborne, uh, his book The Forgiven, uh, which is a novel um, about a couple, an English couple, uh, who are driving to a very fancy party in the Moroccan desert thrown by a gay couple uh, with all sorts of extravagance and en route to this party with the slightly drunk English doctor at the wheel, uh, they run over, either accidentally or on purpose, you're never quite sure, a Moroccan boy who they then bring to the party. They bring his body, they kill him, they bring his body to the party and everything unfolds from there about how how are they going to deal with this. Uh, and uh, it's a very, very gripping, rather extraordinary, vivid tale of really a clash of two different civilizations almost. You talked about this earlier and, and we said it had sort of parallels with Camus, the idea of killing an Arab. Yeah, it definitely has something of that. It's a very, it has, he somehow managed to get in the language, partly by using uh, Arabic terms, uh, but also in something in the prose, he renders the whole, uh, both the party and the environment in which it takes place completely exotic and different. And you see this couple plunged into it and plunged into this incredible tragedy um, in a way uh, you are sort of living their experience of not understanding the people around them. The father of the boy arrives to recover the body and I won't give away the plot, Mm. but he wants something from the doctor who has been driving the car. And what are the management lessons of this? <laughs> yeah, I'm not convinced I've been able to, I've racked my brains to come up with a business line from this book, but I'm afraid I don't, I'm not sure I really have one, unless unless it is that we should be more careful when we cover the uh, the, the parties of the rich and famous. But crisis management, that, I think. Yeah, crisis management, possibly. And uh, Helen, what are you reading? Well, I went to the FT charity book sale last week and I picked up a copy of The Rise, The Fall and The Rise by Brick Smith Start. 
Do you know Brick Smith Start? I don't. No. She is a very successful fashion entrepreneur. She's um, probably in her 50s. She's American, but she works in London. Um, what's very interesting about her, though, is, I mean, her, her entrepreneurial career is interesting in itself, but she had a whole other life in the 80s when she was a member of The Fall. So The Fall, for people who don't know, um, sort of Manchester band punk post-punk with an ever-revolving lineup, uh, consistently fronted by one of pop great curmudgeons, Marky e. Smith. Um, she was married to Marky e. Smith and she was a member of The Fall in the 1980s. Um, and what was interesting about her time in The Fall was that she turned this very sort of not a commercial proposition, yeah, quite a miserablest um, band into um, you know a, a chart-topping success. You know they were on they, suddenly they were on top of the pops and um, they were glamorous and they were appearing in magazines and they had hits. And then she left. It all went wrong. And uh, you know that th that sort of um, sparky um, entrepreneurial success disappeared from the fall. So you know it. it it's, so she was the entrepreneur. In she the band, was, even though she wasn't the front person. She was. She she brought a certain sort of American. Um, brio to you know a, an artistic um, in, very English enterprise and you know she's done the same again but through her fashion empire so I think the uh, the management lesson there is um, you can do worse than hire a sparky American <laughs> <laughs> um, so which uh, via the genre of biography brings us neatly on to our set and sparky book. Americans and sparky Americans indeed brings us neatly on to our set book Andrew Carnegie, published in 2006 and more than 800 pages long, the book brings to life the fascinating rags-to-riches story of one of our most iconic business legends, according to the blurb. John, why is Andrew Carnegie a classic business book? Well, I think the subject is absolutely fascinating in itself. I mean, Andrew Carnegie is possibly the greatest capitalist who ever lived. He arrived in America in 1848 as a 12-year-old penniless immigrant boy and ended up as the richest man in the world. So I think it's a rollicking story uh, of how he managed to achieve that. And Nassau, I think, has written the definitive biography of that story. He's done a phenomenal amount of research and writes very vividly about the story. So it touches upon a great human interest story uh, and also tells you the history of the great explosive growth of American capitalism in the second half of uh, the 19th century and uh, what happened at the beginning of the 20th century. Andrew, you've been reading, I know because I've seen you reading it, um, Andrew Carnegie. Um, what, what did you think? Yes, reading it for the first time. And actually, well, it's a myth-busting book, apart from anything else. It goes back to some of the original sources and confounds some of the things, certainly that I assumed about Carnegie, that perhaps the biggest one is that he gave away all his fortune only after the disgrace of, of having been... Uh, instrumental in the, the fatal strike breaking uh, at Homestead is his steel plant. Um, he makes it very clear, Nassau, that actually this impulse to give away what he had, the fortune he had made, came much earlier, actually. And indeed, one of the things I found most amazing about it was how young Carnegie was when mm. he enjoyed this extraordinary success, and yet how he continued throughout his life when virtually he'd, he was virtually retired. 
uh, as most of us would define it in his in his 50s and yet he continued for another 30 years or more um to be an extraordinary live wire of of ideas world changing ideas i mean he really had this self belief that comes through in every in every page and an optimism that's only finally broken at the very end of his life uh, with the first world war I mean, I read it for the first time as well, and and I thought there were certain themes in this that are so relevant today, it was almost uncanny. You know, immigration, um, uh, the idea of business leaders as politicians, um, American industrialisation. I mean, John, could you give us an idea of the scope of the book when it starts um, and what it takes us through? Well, it does... uh talk about the entire sweep of uh, Carnegie's life, about how he was born in Scotland, his parents moved uh, to this uh, emerging uh, economic superpower, um, and how he formed his business empire, um, really massively opportunistic, uh, pretty ruthless in his uh, tactics, as Andrew has said, uh, but really very uh, ahead of his times, I think. I mean, he was very fascinated by technology. His whole uh, kind of business thesis was that you should buy the latest technology, invest in it massively, accumulate profits as the the cycle swung up, and then hang on to those profits and wait for the next crash down so that you can buy the the next round of assets on the cheap to ride the next uh, boom. Could you make a fortune the same way today, do you think? What what (laughs) struck me very much is how reminiscent this is of China at the moment. Um, 19th century America, there was opening up of this vast continent, uh, and Carnegie rode the whole uh, industrialization of America, the road building, the factory building uh, wave that was taking place there. And it, it seems to me very similar to what's going on in China, where these vast fortunes are being made by um, uh, providing for this surging domestic demand. Um, and so I, I think whenever I go to China, I'm always struck by uh, the kind of sheer aggression, the uh, astonishing energy um, that is uh, in that country, and it seems to me very must be very reminiscent to what nineteenth-century America was. It's also, and I don't know whether you know China better than I do, but this, it, it also struck me that he was always working on the edge of the newly be, newly forming regulations uh, on on things like antitrust. Uh, obviously, there was no insider dealing rule, so he made a lot of money through what we would now categorise as illegal insider dealing. He was always pushing. The edge of the of the of the new legislation and new rules, uh, and and that must be similar to some of the entrepreneurial activity in China. Yes, one would certainly imagine that, and I think there were obviously very pliable regulatory conditions in nineteenth-century America, and Carnegie and many of the other kind of rubber barons, as they were known, uh, were expert at playing um, those rules. So. Uh, it was astonishing how quickly you could amass a fortune, how it became very defensible. Uh, The barriers to entry became quite high and were ruthlessly enforced. He wasn't born wealthy, were his? His his family were educated, but they moved from um, Dunfermline in Scotland to America and uh, they were working class, they were weavers, but they were they were highly skilled, weren't they? Well, he certainly believed all his life in self-improvement. Um, he uh, absolutely believed, I think, in the equality of opportunity and that people should make the best of their own lives uh, and thought that education was the way that you would do that. So he was very much a kind of self-taught man. He really prided himself in the education that he gave himself, uh, so he didn't receive much formal education at all. And I think that was one of the impulses of why he decided to 
bestow, uh, I think it was more than 3,000 libraries around the world. Uh, he really wanted to give other people, uh, kind of budding Andrew Carnegie's, um, that same leg up uh, that he thought he had had from his own kind of education. Um, I mean, he had memorised huge, great tranches of literature uh, and he had always had these quotable quotes. And I think one of the great things that Nassau manages to do is give you an idea of what an extraordinary raconteur and presence he was with this amazing sort of self-taught library in his, in his head. I mean, you want to, at one point, I thought, I, I just want to be sitting at the table listening to Carnegie holding forth. And the book is as close as you get, I think. He gave a hint of this in his early life, didn't he? Because he he wasn't particularly well educated when he was a child. He went to work um, in his early teens as uh, a telegraph boy. Is that that's right, isn't it? Where he took messages. It was an early form of communication, and he took messages between businesses in Pittsburgh. Yes, and he made a point of. Uh, I remember this passage where he makes a point of making sure he can recognise when he gets the opportunity to. Uh, to meet one of the Pittsburgh worthies who he's delivering messages to. He memorises who it is so that next time he'll be able to deliver the message on the street if he sees the person on the street when he's en route. So he's already looking at ways to kind of foster his network and to improve his career. And he also uh, would have been carrying a lot of news reports Um, interestingly he would have kept up with the news and he would have understood the power of the media at that time at a very young age and um, his uncles interestingly were chartists weren't they that's right he had a radical some radical roots Mm, yeah so he's able to sort of draw on that I think as a as a bit of an inspiration although the book makes clear that his father was not a great inspiration to him he was very close to his mother and that's another interesting point. He got married very late in life by comparison even with today. And uh, he was somebody who later on, as he realised he wanted to court a wife, he started to play down a little bit the influence of his of his mother in order not to appear too much enthralled to her. But she was his a very... His lived very with him, didn't that's she? That's right, yes. Yeah. It was a problem for him, I think, as if I read Nassau's biography correctly. One of the other things that I thought was interesting was the... Uh, from a sort of management point of view, was that it's almost as though he is managing from an early age, and he was, as I say, very young when he made his fortune, uh, remotely. Nassau says that he didn't really want to have face-to-face meetings with his workers, and so he delegated a lot, and latterly he communicated a lot by, by telegram and by letter, almost like the modern equivalent of communicating by email or text. Um, he was in touch, but he wasn't a hands-on manager. In fact, he shied away from that. Which was very handy when it came to the homestead strike he because was. he tried to wash his hands of the whole thing even though he was clearly implicated yes, uh, he was able to delegated it all to Frick to manage. Well, yeah. let, let's run through that period, the, the homestead strike. Well, there was a lot of, uh, was a lot of industrial tension um, around the steel factories and, and homestead... Uh, the, the the sparking point was that uh, on at Homestead and before that at one of his other factories, uh, he decided that, uh, they, or they decided, he and Henry Clay Frick, of course, in his own right, built a great fortune and endowed the uh, Frick uh, Gallery in, in New York. He and Frick had come to the conclusion that they had to break the union. And in order to do so, they brought in the um, the Pinkertons, uh, which was the private detective agency, but which supplied kind of bully boy 
workers to substitute or to break in and then substitute for the workers that they were going to uh, shut out. Was that a new tactic or was that widely in use? Well, Nassau makes clear that they had actually used it, although with less publicity, at uh, another plant. But it was interesting ma- mainly because in for Carnegie, who had kind of got himself a reputation as a friend of the unions in his earlier part of his career, uh, the reason why this was so cataclysmic for him was that it actually tainted his reputation, uh, made it more difficult for him to do a lot of the things that he was becoming famous for, including actually some of the ph- philanthropy. Some of the original bequests that he'd made were then rejected, which is, again, reminiscent a little bit of what sometimes mm. happens now when wealthy people's names are put on buildings and then their reputation takes a dive yeah. and it becomes an embarrassment for those who received it. There was a little bit of that. It was seen as a betrayal that he had, with Frick, brought in this strike-busting force at the Homestead plant. And when the, the Pinkertons arrived, shots were fired and there were deaths. So it was really a, a traumatic uh, moment, turning point in Carnegie's life. And as John said earlier, uh, he wasn't in the country at the time. He was travelling. Uh, he was in Scotland and he uh, he heard about it at a distance and then actually tried to um, absolve himself of any responsibility. I think that duality is one of the fascinating aspects of Carnegie, which he exhibited all the way through his life. On the one hand, he absolutely chiselled down his workers, um, took the advantage of every deal that he could, was an incredibly aggressive negotiator and wanted to maximise the profits of all his companies. Yet on the other hand, I think it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that he actually invented the whole modern philanthropy movement by giving away this vast amount of wealth. And a few years ago, I went to visit uh, Skibo Castle, which is this extraordinary estate that he built in, or didn't build, he rebuilt in Scotland. And I spoke to the librarian there, and she was saying that there are letters that uh, they have which show that when Carnegie was in America, he was writing to the estate manager at Skibo, uh, this being when he was the wealthiest man in the world, saying that he thought that uh, the manager was paying the scullery maids far too much money uh, <laughs> and that they ought to have kept their salaries capped. Um, so he had this kind of infinitesimal detail or minute detail for all the what all the, his workers were paid, even though he had this prodigious wealth himself. What's Skibo like, John? Well, it's a magnificent building uh, overlooking the sea. It was uh, pretty much a ruins when he bought it. He spent a fortune on renovating it to spend all the summers there with his wife um, and his daughter. And it became this extraordinary magnet for famous people from all around the world. Um, Rudyard Kipling went there, various prime ministers. Helen Keller went there as well at one time. And it became a a real kind of intellectual salon. Um, Carnegie used to love holding forth at the end of his dining room table with all these astonishing array of guests. And they would go for these long bracing walks. They'd go for uh, sailing in his yacht up and down the coast. And he also um, developed a golf course there, which is a really fantastic um, golf course. And you, I hear, slept in Carnegie's bed. I did. (laughs) I had the opportunity to do that. Um, And what was astonishing about the room, I mean, apart from the uh, wonderful view, was that you realise just how short he was. He was only uh, just over five foot. It was a very small bed. And when I went to shave in his bathroom mirror the next morning, I had to bend down because uh, in order to see myself in the mirror but he was this incredibly intense bundle of energy. He was a very small man, but I think physically uh, he was very imposing. He had an enormous aura around him, and everyone who came across him 
had a sense that this was a, an astonishing personality. And Nassau says that he was always the centre of attention, even th- though he was short of stature. In fact, some of the amusing bits of the book are about how people described his, his size. had a very big head, apparently. You can see that in some of the photographs in Nassau's book, some of the photographs he's chosen. He is a very striking-looking man. I mean, one of the things that I'm interested in is when I meet chief executives and others, there's a lot of interest in biography, and this is why this is a good choice for the for the first book, long as it is, the biographies get uh, the attention of important people because I think they like to compare themselves against what other people did in crises, you know, how other people's lives played out. Of course, you get the illusion of being able to shape your life, which, which Carnegie certainly tried to do. In a lot of the cases, he wrote down what he was going to do with his fortune or with his life earlier in his career. And quite a lot of biographies have made it onto our Business Book of the Year award. We've got Alan Greenspan's biography by Sebastian Malaby on this year's shortlist, and there's been a Steve Which has yet the to Steve be published, Jobs. is that right? That book has yet to be published, The Man Who Knew, I yes. think, out later in October. And the Steve Jobs biography, Paul Volcker's biography, both of those mm. have been on previous shortlists. So it's definitely something that kind of captures the imagination of, of business people to read not only about other business people, but also about any great person and how they have developed their career. Most of the chief executives I meet or talk to, the modern book they all cite is the Elon Musk biography, which I suppose would be the the modern day equivalent of Andrew Carnegie. Yes. Is there a modern day Carnegie? Well, Musk is an interesting example of somebody with huge self-belief. And that biography, which of course is written only halfway through what could be still a very long career if he lives as long as Carnegie Mm. did, is is very good and very interesting about the kind of driven nature of the man. There are parallels, I think, particularly with what John was talking about with Carnegie's kind of we must meet the goal at all costs. And one of the things I didn't know until I read the Nassau biography was how Carnegie was influenced by the philosopher Herbert Spencer and the idea that whatever he did, whatever the what we would now call collateral damage of his management style and his hard driving of the uh, of the workers would be worthwhile for the greater benefit of humanity and the world that was something that i think very much he thought he thought the market cards would fall as they will but he as a great man had to had to lead uh, notwithstanding the sometimes grisly consequences and i think that comes through very well at the end of uh, nestle's biography because Carnegie very much felt that his life ended in failure, uh, that he spent his last few years endowing various peace institutes. The peace um, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace grew out of this uh, whole thrust, that he believed that he wanted to promote peace and harmony amongst nations. Uh, he even gave a peace prize to Kaiser Wilhelm II uh, and um, was very much instrumental in trying to bring nations together and promote uh, peace around the world. And then, of course, all of this, uh, his efforts were, uh, came to nothing uh, when the world descended into the First World War in 1914, uh, which completely shattered Carnegie. And I think he very much felt that this massive dark cloud had descended on his life, which he never recovered from. Yes, it's very moving, actually, I think. And he, he goes kind of silent almost at the end of his life as he lives through the First well, He lives through the First World War. It doesn't die till mm. after the war is over, but it, it does... It, it, in a book which is absolutely imbued with his great optimism and happiness and, and kind energy. of uh, energy, mm. uh, to see this man virtually disintegrate at the end, I think is is quite moving. 
I'd like to bring in Yanina Conboy, our producer, who has been rummaging in the FT library to find our original review of the book from 2006. Yanina, what did you find? So the book was first reviewed in the FT magazine in January 2007 by Stephen Grobard, who is also the author of The Presidents. So we used to have book reviews in the magazine. Yes, we did. Yeah. Here we are. Here's Interesting. The, <laughs> the review generally looked quite kindly upon the book um, and felt that it um, was an important contribution to our understanding of America's Gilded Age. And certainly the review points out that Nassau concentrates on Carnegie more as a proud Scot and patriotic American, critical of monarchical and aristocratic Britain. He was, he was wasn't he? He, he? he felt this quite keenly, that certainly in his, his early letters home, not long after he moved to America, they keep bringing this back, don't they? This idea that Britain's uh, system of aristocracy and monarchy is holding Britain back and that the American you know, sister, system is, is more productive, more well-suited to capitalism. Yes, given that he was a great fan of Scotland and came to mm. Britain a lot, he was quite rude about the system. And, yeah. and sort of and adopted the manners and the, the living patterns of aristocrats himself, as well as a contradiction there. Isn't yeah, it? it is a strange contradiction, mm. but he definitely he was very rude about the House of Lords, which of course is not a unique <laughs> position even among Brits, but uh, he was uh, there was certainly a lot of that he published a book, I think it was called Triumphant Democracy, is that what it is? Yeah. Which he then marketed strongly in Britain, even though it was essentially a takedown of, of the British hierarchical system. So Grobard picks that out in his review. Yeah. And what, what else does um, he say? He also picks out that Nassau emphasises that Carnegie didn't regard hard work as a virtue in itself. And to quote the book, um, nor did he believe that the accumulation of wealth was a sign of his election or a just reward for past diligence. The piling up of wealth signified nothing in itself except that one had been in the right place at the right time, avoided moral vices and wisely concentrated one's energies and talents. And the review obviously also Quite right. <laughs> the review also touches on his concentrates on his change in reputation after the shootings. His reputation suffered with some newspapers viewing this as a capitalist massacre. Once thought a friend of the worker, even something of a socialist, he seemed reduced to a grasping capitalist, unconcerned with his employees' lives. It was a review that definitely thought the book was a worthwhile contribution to this man's life. I think it's also fascinating how his reputation has changed since his death, uh, that initially I think there was kind of enormous respect for him uh, and gratitude for the fact that he had endowed so many institutions and libraries around the world. Uh, and then his reputation very much went through a down phase um, when he was viewed as this rapacious capitalist, a robber baron. That side of his personality was very much um, built up and people focused on the homestead uh, riots and the strike strike breaking and his uh, kind of aggressive capitalist practices. And I remember talking to some of Carnegie's relatives uh, who said it very much depended on how old you were when you grew up as to whether people gave you a hard time at school or thought that um, uh, he was someone to be emulated and revered. And uh, they were saying that possibly because of uh, Nassau's book, but uh, some of our other recent books that have come out about Carnegie, something of a re-evaluation of him now, that uh, there is a putting... Balancing both sides of um, the scales, that, that there is that sense that he was an extraordinary capitalist, but he was also a phenomenally generous man. So I think we that Nassau has contributed to a kind of rebalancing of the whole reputation of Carnegie. Yeah, the book uh, certainly brings out the contradictions. I think that's one of the virtues of it. 
I wonder if we were writing a review, if the FT today were to write a review of the book, w- would we write something like that, you know, that we published 10 years ago? Or would we bring in more of this idea of, you know, the robber barons and rapacious capitalism? Because that was written before the crash. Now would we write it differently, Andrew, do you think? Uh, I think you, one might well bring out a bit more the parallels with the the, mm. the financial crisis and the reputation of bankers, uh, but also specifically of the very wealthy, mm. which clearly has taken uh, a knocking. And clearly we've focused much more on sort of inequality in the last couple of years, which is something that um, the book allows a, you to take a new perspective on. So it might have, might have been a rather different review. I think it would have been just as complimentary because I think the book is, is obviously... This is why I was saying last time uh, that it's embarrassing that it didn't even make the long list of our book award <laughs> back in 2006 because one of the requirements is that the book should be of enduring value and this is a book mm. I think people will keep on going back to over the years. I spoke to David Nassau last week. He wrote the book in 2006 so I started by asking him whether he would have written it in a different way a decade on. Yes, a slight different emphasis, I think. Carnegie lived in a time of crisis. Capitalism is not capitalism without ups and downs. And Carnegie was very clear that the businessman had to understand that the good times were not going to last forever, had to put aside money, because when the bad times came, it was time to buy. It was time to buy steel mills that were going under. It was time to invest in new coal mines, new iron mines, new transportation. And that for the smart businessman, depressions were a moment of opportunity, but only if one had put aside enough money to take advantage of that opportunity. So I think I would have stressed that a bit more, but I also would have dealt with Carnegie's distaste for men of wealth who didn't produce anything. (laughs) Carnegie was very proud that he did not make his money manipulating currencies, trading stocks or bonds, but producing something and producing something that the world needed at a cheaper price than it had ever been produced before. And his notions that there was something noble in creating a product and giving it to a larger public at a lower price, um, and something ignoble about making money from the buying and selling of pieces of paper, of stock, of currencies, I I think I would have dealt with that more. And I would have said more about Carnegie's world, Carnegie's industrialization, and industrial revolution. Was a past that had vanished, that we were in a new stage of capitalism, one he might not have understand or prospered in. Now, many FT readers tell us that biography is their favourite form of business book. What is it about biography that makes it perfect for business readers? I think biography is a grand historical genre because it allows the business person, it allows 
the CEO and those who hope to have the opportunity to be CEOs a sense of what is possible and what is not possible for an individual. That when I write a biography, it's always about how an individual takes what's given him or her, sets goals and objectives, and then either meets or doesn't meet them. And and what I've understood in working on three immensely powerful men is that, to quote another immensely powerful man, you can't always get what you want. <laughs> that, yes, yes, yes. Um, you can't always get what you want, but you get what you need. And these guys, these, these guys never stopped wanting more, never stopped dreaming or extending their visions, never stopped taking risks, never stopped moving forward. And I think that's a lesson that we all want to hear again and again because we know it's an important one and one we, we can't forget, especially the, the businessman. David Nassau, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. John, can you give us a one-sentence bluffer's guide to Andrew Carnegie? Well, I think this is a long book about a short man, one of the most (laughs) intriguing, successful capitalists of the 20th century, and it is the definitive biography. The definitive biography. Great. Our next challenge is set by Sarah Gordon, the FT's business editor. Her book, Barbarians at the Gate, a classic business book that tells the story of the leveraged buyout of RJR Nabisco, written by investigative journalists Brian Burrow and John Hellyar, and first published in 1989. Here's Sarah with her pitch. The best business yarns all have a whiff of Greek tragedy, and Barbarians at the Gate is no exception. Any saga of the inevitable fall that follows excessive greed and hubris is extremely satisfying, whether it's King Lear or Lehman Brothers in the run-up to the financial crisis. But what is fascinating about Barbarians at the Gate was that it was one of the first, if not the first, business book to be written like a thriller. It tells the tale of what was then the largest leveraged buyout ever of um, RJR Nabisco by KKR, Kohlberg, Kravis, Roberts, They were corporate raiders, essentially, who bought the company in 1988 against the will of its swashbuckling chief executive, Ross Johnson. It tells the tale of a new way of doing business and the sweeping away of a whole corporate culture in America. And like all the best books, it's also about America in general, about its history. It's written by journalists, so it's extremely densely and uh, rigorously reported and it's just a fantastic read that's relevant for anyone looking at M&A today. John, what do you think? Will you be reading Barbarians at the Gate? Oh, I've read it uh, several years ago now, but I thought it was a fantastic read. Uh, I mean, it really kind of captured a moment in American capitalist history, as well as being a, a superb account of the kind of personalities of, who are involved in this astonishing takeover bid. Because then anyone new to this to this book, any anyone who hasn't heard of it before, might think... This is the story of a leveraged buyout. It sounds a bit dry. Is it dry? I don't think so at all. I, I mean, <laughs> it was written by two reporters who really knew uh, the people involved. Uh, they have incredibly kind of colourful tales surrounding the personalities. 
and I think it is an amazing story of uh, this kind of massive competition. It really captures a moment. Andrew, I, have you read it? Yes, I have, again, a, a while ago, but I agree with John. I think it's, for me, it's the sort of uh, non-fiction companion to Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities, mm, which mm. came out around the same time, both of them conjuring a particular period in, in Wall Street. And it is the sort of prototype for all the other big investigative um, investigative books which tell a narrative tale of some great moment in business history. I was interested to see when I was just uh, looking it up recently that uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin, who wrote Too Big to Fail, which was yes. the big account of, uh, of the crisis, yes. uh, picked it out as his all-time favourite business book. And I think it's on a lot of people's lists. Will you be reading Barbarians at the Gate? You can join the discussion by tweeting us at FTWorkCareers with the hashtag FTBizBooks or you can email us at businessbookclub at ft.com. We'll be back in the studio with Sarah in two weeks' time to discuss Barbarians at the Gate and we very much hope you will join us. In the meantime, thank you to Andrew Hill and to John Thornhill and to our producer, Yanina Conboy. And thank you for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.